To go deeper into our episodes, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. Or, to get a fuller, unedited experience, go find this episode on SpotlightOnPodcast.com. There, the notes are packed with links to resources that give you more about the people and topics explored here. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on pianist and composer Angelica Sanchez, who joined us late last year to discuss her latest record, Nighttime Creatures, out on Pyroclastic Records. Since moving to New York from Arizona in 1994, Angelica has collaborated with artists including Wadada Leo Smith, Paul Motion, Richard Davis, Tim Byrne, Ben Monder, and many, many others. On Nighttime Creatures, Angelica leads her nonette through material she composed while living in a secluded cabin in upstate New York. There, she was inspired by the sights, sounds, and yes, creatures of the nocturnal environment surrounding her. Angelica's been recognized with awards, grants, and fellowships that honor her creativity. She's also an assistant professor at Bard College, and now she's a guest of Spotlight On. Well, I'm very excited to talk with you. I've spent a bunch of time with Nighttime Creatures over the last few days, and that's such an exciting, fun record. It covers a lot of territory. It took some time to make. Yeah, that was my understanding and reading a little bit about it. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about the Nonet format. Whenever I speak with an artist who works with an ensemble that large, I think I'm always surprised when it doesn't feel or sound chaotic or cumbersome it feels like a real like feat to be able to pull that off especially when there's an improvisational element right i wonder if you could talk a little bit about your pull to that format how you assembled the cast of characters and what was this long gestation period well i initially started writing for big band ran and went to have a big band and i did have a big band performance at some point but then it was just not practical in any way, it was really expensive and uh, it's not something I could find myself. I don't have private funding or anything like that. I just do everything myself. I decided to just pull together um, some of my favorite players, right? And I settled on the, the no-net size because it has such a long history, right? And I thought my instrumentation is a little bit different than any of the other no-net that I'm aware of. But I love that sound because you can get a sort of a chamber sound with that group and then also a larger, bigger sound, depending on how you arrange things, right? So that was a challenge and the fun part of it for me. But I'm, I wrote for all of those specific people, all those players. I wrote the music with them in mind. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I didn't write for instruments. I wrote for people. Oh, that's fascinating. And if I understand correctly, your background, your education is in arranging... That's your thing. It's funny. It never was always, it never was my thing before. So I didn't go to school as a young person. I tried, it didn't work. So I just wanted to play the piano, right? So as an adult in my late thirties, I decided to go back to school and I didn't have a bachelor's or anything. So I got a bachelor's 
I, I stayed at the same school and got a master's in jazz arranging because I wanted to pick something that I had never really studied before. I had arranged things, but never studied arranging with a teacher, right? It was a blast. I loved doing it. And I really, I found a deep love for arranging and I thought, yeah, this is the right thing. You know, it was just by chance. So I've always loved composing, right? And I've learned to arrange on my own, but to go and study with someone and see what many different people do was, was really fun for me. You know, it was a master's degree, but it was, it was, it didn't feel like work at all for me. I loved it. Was it a conservatory type environment? No, it was a state college, William Patterson University. They are known for having one of the greatest jazz programs in the country. And that's why I went there. Like Harold Mayburn was teaching there. Cecil Bridgewater, I studied with him. David Dempsey runs a program. And they just have like, oh, wonderful players to teach there. And it's a great school for that, right, for music. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that lineage of education? Obviously, you went back to school and you were very sort of deliberate, right? That was a conscious choice. You didn't do the thing that a lot of young people do. Of Now it's time to go to school. I'm going to go to school. And I, to go back later in life, is it's an intention. And now to be involved in education, what does that mean to you outside of just, you know, a way to, to sustain a life as a working artist? Especially in the jazz tradition, there's such a mixture of conservatory training, but also the oral tradition, you know, the doing part of the tradition and the learning from other players. And could you talk a little bit about like the role and the importance and how you view the role of the educator in jazz? The jazz education for a long time was mostly taught by white males. This is something that's changing now, right? I always tell students, I can't teach you how to play. I'm not going to tell you what to play and I can't teach you how to play. I'm going to show you how to teach yourself. I'm going to show you how to build language. There's not one way to do something. And I always tell a student, if somebody tells you that you have to play something one way, find another teacher, right? Because it doesn't allow any room for the student to learn about his or her dislikes. So jazz education is changing. I think a lot of universities and conservatories are figuring out that they want to have professors and teachers that are, are making music in the world today, right? Because for a long time, people that were teaching were weren't the people that were making the music, right? Yeah. You can't show somebody something that you don't do. That is, is starting to change, right? And that's why I'm working. I have a job teaching. But I have that unique experience of, of going through a jazz education program. That particular program I went through was geared towards playing. You play a lot in that program because that's the only way you can learn to do it, to play, right? With guidance, of course. Jazz education is changing. There's a lot more than just chords relationship to music. That's how I teach it. I teach students how to teach themselves. I teach them how to make their intent clear. And I teach them the history of it. I said, look what all these other people did. Find what you like the most, put it under a microscope, and then expand that. And then maybe after 20 years, you might sound like yourself if you're lucky. You know, there's no guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I approach it. What was your early piano education like, like even as a younger person taking piano lessons, things of that nature? Like what was your introduction to being a student and what was that like for you? I started taking piano lessons when I was 10 years old because my brother did and I wanted to do what my older brother did. And it was just like a local woman that taught a lot of those horrible method books that they make children learn from. I hate those books. It wasn't a great education, but I got to go somewhere every week and learn something new as a kid 
When it really changed for me was when my father introduced me to his record collection. And that's when I started to get really serious. I started playing along with records. I started trying to play, you know, form bands and learn standards. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time. The professor from the local university came to my high school and heard me and offered me free lessons like once a month at the college. So my father would drive me to the college and he would give me a free lesson. It's really lovely. Thinking about it now, it's, it's really, it was something great that he did. His name is Chuck Moronick. He's still alive. I believe he lives in Kentucky. I, I realize now, what many years later, that really gave me a level up from all my friends because I, I, I was learning about the music from a wonderful, from a great player early. So right around 16, I started applying for music camps in the summer, jazz camps, because I knew I had to get out of uh, the city I was in. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. There weren't a lot of opportunities for me at that point. There were a couple of local youth bands, like a big band. Uh, but beyond that, there wasn't much. So I started going to these summer camps and really got a lot of experience at the summer camps. The first one was in Aspen with the saxophone player named Paul Jeffries who played with Monk. And then the second one I went to was Banff in Canada. And that was the big one where I was exposed to like Muhal Richard Abrams and Jim Hall was there and Kenny Wheeler was there, all these wonderful musicians that we could talk with and play with and learn from. And that was a month long program. And, you know, at that point I knew, I knew at 10 years old, I wanted to, I wanted to be a jazz musician or wow. at least play music. I wasn't sure. Right around that age, a local jazz group came to the grade school and played like in the cafeteria. It must have been a terrible gig for those guys. I don't I don't remember who it was. And I just remember being like, I thought they were just playing for me. Like all the kids were going crazy and I was just fixated. And I ran home to my father. I was like, do you still have those old jazz records? And he was like, yeah. And he, he just let me devour them. But I knew they were, I told him, I want to be a jazz piano player. And they're like, okay. <laughs> he was like working class folks. But my father loved music. My parents both loved, loved music. So they were supportive. What was in that record collection? My father loved George Shearing. He had a modern jazz quartet. He had a lot of Dave Brubeck, Willie Bobo. And he had a lot of Tito Puente. He had all of the Joe Beam records. And those I fell in love with as a kid. I wore them out as a kid. He liked a really cool sound. Yeah. Ah, such a great sound with Stan Getz. I, I still have a deep love for Brazilian music, even today. But he would take me once a month and let me pick out a new record. Like, it was great dad. And I didn't know what. I was when I just picked based on the cover. The first record I bought uh, was a Yellow Jackets record. I think I was like 13 or something. And then the second one was an Oscar Peterson record. I was just, you know, at random getting these cool things. So, you know, eventually I found everyone else. Mary McPartland's show became syndicated and jazz yeah. was on the radio at that point, right around 14. People don't realize if you grow up in a town where there isn't a lot of jazz and that radio is really like a lifeline. I've learned, I learned so much from hearing her programs, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting about Marion's show that to your point, radio has that unique ability. Like it comes into your home. All you have to do is be exploring on the dial or having had it set there because you were listening to the news or whatever. And then a few hours later, there's this sort of signal from another world that comes in. And I think that, I think she played that role for a lot of people. She brought a lot of interesting music into people's homes that probably would not have otherwise encountered it. Yeah. I learned a lot about the language from hearing her program. And I used to have like a tape. Remember those tape? You used to have a tape deck attached to the radio and you could record. Yeah. 
I did that. I was just sit there and press record like all day long. And I had really supportive parents. They were like, I think at some point they were like, you should maybe go outside. And I was like, nope, I'm going to sit here and practice because that's what I want to do. Wow. They were okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that's really neat in what you just told me is that idea of coming across records or acquiring records without any like larger context, like the idea that you grab a Yellow Jackets record and grab an Oscar Peterson record, you don't get bogged down in like any external expectations or external ideas of what's like high and low art or what's proper. You get to form your own aesthetic. That's a really neat thing to be able to do without having to bear the baggage of a tradition or a a school of thought. I'm Mexican-American. In many ways, that's always a a gray area to find your lineage is where you came from. But I, I invented my own universe through that. I invented my own identity to the music. And nobody was telling me what I should or shouldn't listen to, right? One player, just like one book, one good book leads you to the next good book, right? So I would get a record, read the liner notes, learn everyone's name on it, and then get records from all those people. And then I found my way to Monk and Jerry Allen. I, well, I was about 16 when I, and I found Jerry Allen, that really. Because at that point, people were starting to tell me, you play different, you shouldn't play that way. And I thought, why are they telling me? Because my, my, the way, way I approach things is a little different. And then I heard Jerry Allen, and here's somebody with her own language, but definitely coming out of this monk school. And I thought, no, I'm not going to listen to anybody. And right around 16, I just stopped listening to teachers and stopped studying with people and just worked on the things that I loved and practiced and and, and played a lot. I, I tried to play as much as I could with all kinds of people, right? That's why I started doing the summer camps. I had access to people, so... make any assumptions. I I think I have some ideas, but when people said you were playing different, what was it they were trying to wring out of you? What were they hearing that was, I don't know, for lack of a better way to say it, like objectionable to them? Or what did they want you to stop doing? I couldn't speak for them, but I I think it's the way I was uh, interpreting the language, right? The way I was interpreting bebop language, because I learned bebop language, or the way I was interpreting rhythm. It wasn't what they were used to. But I, at that point, I was already listening to like Keith Jarrett and Dewey Redmond and Jerry Allen. And, and that was my reference, right? And that was the music that attracted me. You're studying with older people that are coming from a different tradition. So that's why I don't tell students what to play. I just say, make sure that your intent is clear. And if it's not clear, go and think about it. Or I'll help you make that clear. I'll help you find it, right? As a teacher, that's what we're supposed to do. 
But of course, the student has to have a foundation, right? So at that point, I it started. I had a foundation. I was forming my own ideas about shapes I wanted to use or how I approached the language, right? If I wanted to use the language in an abbreviated way or in a way that was more angular or a way that was disjointed, that was not something that was supported, really. That's when I stopped. I dropped out of college. I was like, this is not for me. Yeah, I think you got a better education from Monk and Jerry Allen than you <laughs> you were going to anywhere else at that point. <laughs> something else you said that really landed for me because it took me back to being a child and taking piano lessons. You didn't quite say it this way, but the way I heard it, the way I felt it was that you said something about learning what you like and don't like. I'm of the same generation where my piano lessons, they were like a stern older lady who like didn't make it fun in any way. And it was a lot of, I think it was a year before, a year of lessons before I was even really allowed to like play the piano. It was like drawing notes in the theory books. And as a six or seven year old, like you could not ask me to do anything less fun. So the way I heard what you said was, I never really, it took me years to learn what I liked. My piano lessons were always defined by what I didn't like. And that made yeah. doing it a drag. And it sapped it of that essential, like fun and joy. For years, I lived in New York. I lived in Brooklyn. And my kids were, for the early part of their life, raised there. And my son took piano lessons at a school that was literally the exact opposite. It was very much like play-based his first lesson, he came home and pecked out a little melody, four note melody on the piano, but it gets you going, right? You get to hear yourself making something that actually has some, you, you make a little song. And when it was time to learn about rhythm, they sat him at a drum. It was very engaging. And I think about how grateful I am that sort of like the pedagogies evolved. <laughs> yeah. Especially with little ones, you know? It has to yeah. be. It has. I, when I, there was a time in my life where I taught little kids for a long time to eke out a living or whatever. And I would have three to five year olds. And a lot of times parents would come and say, little Timmy hates music because he had a really bad piano teacher, just someone that was not fun, just someone couldn't think outside of themselves. So I really started to develop ways of reaching younger kids that can't sit still, right? Like, how can you make this fun for them? How can you bring the music to someone? It's a little, and I learned that they already have the music. They already have it. It's already there in their heads. You just have to and not talk down to a kid and, and, and show them the clear path to how to get that music inside of the head. So I, I did the same thing. I would have little five-year-olds writing tunes, and then I might write it out for them and say, oh, I want you to learn the first note of your song is on the first line. Let's learn the name of that first line. And then I would stop right there. So you have to ease a, a child into it. But they were so excited to make something, right? But yeah, I, I'm happy to hear your, your children are, are having good musical experiences. One of the most fun things about that experience was every year, instead of doing what we would have called like a recital, they do a gig. And the teachers in the school form the backing band. And each semester, the kid learns the song that he's going to lead the band or he or she is going to lead the band. And that's really fun to go see, to watch, you know, an hour of kids from six to high school age picking the song or picking the song with their teacher. Because I, I think obviously you, you would know, like, there's nothing like sitting in front of a band, like when the drummer kicks in, like it's a whole different you want to talk about 
wanting to play then and wanting to practice. It's fun. Yeah, it lights the fire uh, for, for that sounds wonderful to get to play yeah. live music like with grown-ups, right? When you're a kid. <laughs> so you said, you know, you were 10 and you had this sort of moment of realizing I want to do what those folks are doing. Were you tunnel visioned? Were you still into the pop music of your day? Like, you know, how, what was your what was your musical appetite like? You know, I loved all kinds of music as a kid. I would go to hear YouTube play or listen to Elton John or I loved all that culture club as a kid. But as I got a little older, I found McCoy Tyner and I remember spending years in the dark, you know, in my room, blasting train and my poor, my poor mother. So my friends weren't into that. At that point, I wasn't that interested in pop music and got more interested in it a little bit later. Now I love all kinds of pop music now too, from different countries. I loved the music of the eighties. I would play club dates in the Southwest we called them casuals, but I, I would play club dates and weddings and bars. I did all that. So I learned all that music. I, I love R&B music. I, I got to play a lot of it as a kid. So I learned it. I knew all of it. I also had the, the lucky to have an older sister who's 18 years older than me. So she hit me to all the music of the sixties. So I got to learn that music too. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, it's the, having that musical mentor. And it sounds like you had a few just within your own family who could help you find all those avenues to explore. Yeah, everyone loved music. I was the only, I was the only musician. So. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight On, please share us with a friend and leave a review or star rating on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. I read a little bit, but I would love to hear in your own words... The inspiration for Nighttime Creatures. It's so funny listening to the title track. It's almost literal. <laughs> like I, I can hear the, even the opening passage. There's that sort of spine tingling feeling of like, it's dark out and there's sound out there. And what is it? And uh, it's very evocative. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the, the genesis and the inspiration. So naming things is always difficult for me. And I, I'm sorry to disappoint you that I named it. It had other names before then. As I was putting the record together, eventually, at the very end stage of rehearsing and playing with these guys, I finally figured out what it should be called. If you have a kid and you want to name it till you see it, that's how it was. And then I do live part-time up in Woodstock, just being out at dark when there's no light pollution. It's just a totally other experience. And I used to think, hey, I want to live in the woods. And then I live in the woods and I'm like, this is scary. And I realized what a person I was at that point. So I named it much later in the process because I had to take a step back. Like, you know, when you see a, a painting and you're too close, you don't always see everything. And I had to take a step back to see how I wanted to arc. I wanted to shape this body of work and the mood and everything um, became very clear to me. So Nighttime Creatures came out of that and uh, it's funny, other people have said that, that they, they almost hear this literal, like, nighttime creatures. So maybe I did, too, and I thought, oh, yes, this is the right title for it. The title came much later, so I don't know how that works. I love talking with instrumental artists about their approach to naming their works. I find so many interesting stories from people from the dismissive to, like, 
almost like a hands-off approach. Like you think of almost like a miles type approach where it's like, well, I just let the producer name them or I don't really care. Or I just come up with phrases. I, I walk around with a notebook of phrases and I throw them at songs and that's fine to others that are very deliberate and almost narrative, literally yeah, narrative based. And this song means a specific thing. Do you have an approach? Like, do you start with a theme or a narrative concept or does that get shoehorned in later or is it not that binary for you? Titles usually come after the composition because I don't always know what a composition is going to be until I finish it. I don't map out what things are going to be. And oftentimes with the process for the note, I would bring things to rehearsal and hear the band play and then realize, oh, I need to make changes. So I would go back and make changes. I didn't change the content. Like I left the content alone, but I might change how I arranged something or a voicing or I might add a section. I had the luxury of shaping it, but we played concerts and uh, we had tried to record before we we did a live recording, right? So we had a lot of opportunities to play. So it gave me a chance to, to really sculpt the music over the period of around five or six years. And by year four, I had figured out what, what it was going to be, right? And then I had most of the titles uh, early on, but then some of them came later, like Nighttime Creatures. And uh, as, as I figured out, when I finally finished it, at some point you have to say, okay, this is finished. I'm not going to, you can't keep editing something. But there, there isn't a, a set way. I don't have a set way of composing and I don't have a set way of titling things. I try to let those things evolve and appear to me. The music's already there for me, right? I just have to get myself out of the way to receive it and then put it on the page and then figure out how to, let, how to tell people these notes on page you don't have to read all of them if you don't want to. Sometimes I do want them to read the through composed section, but other times they, they can take liberties with, with that music. So it's a tricky sort of always evolving, moving situation. I want the music to move forward, to have a forward motion. So you provide, and, and especially in the Nonet context, you provide charts for each player, like they're, they're getting written pieces. Oh yeah, everyone has charts. I wrote charts for all the music. Within the chart, I can take liberties. There are moments where I won't know what they're going to do. And as a composer, a lot of composers like want to have that control, but I don't. I don't yeah. necessarily want control. I don't want it. I want the excitement of not knowing what's coming. That's amazing. So you're not precious about it. No, I don't believe it to be precious. I don't like playing precious music. That does not. Do- Life isn't precious. It isn't. <laughs> so I didn't want. I didn't want the music to be either. So I, I, people need to be able to take liberties. I'm not, I can't tell you how many scores I threw in the garbage because I'll make another one. There's more ideas. There's more that if I don't like it, I'll, I'll throw it out. Music is life, right? It's moving. It's alive. It's evolving. And I always want the music that I get the opportunity to play to have that feel, that feeling to it. You know? Yeah, I've, I've seen that theme come up a few times in quotes of yours, this, this notion of the live life movement. These words come up a lot in things you've said in, in the press material for this album, other other snippets I've read of yours. Have you always felt that the well was bottomless in terms of source material or inspiration? Or did you come to that after years of being able to create? Like, were you ever worried that you wouldn't be able to generate no. a channel? No. I mean, channeling, I treat it as a meditation. So if you if your mind is cluttered in a way that doesn't allow you to get to whatever art you want to make, then that's something you have to work on. And that's something that I definitely 
worked on. I tell the story when I first started studying Tai Chi, I used to work um, a job I didn't like to, for money, like in an office. And But across the street was a Tai Chi uh, center. And I would go there almost every day. And like the first class, you do a horse dance. I don't know if you know anything about Tai Chi. But you, it's just one move. You're holding this movement, right? And he had really, your thighs really... And they, he just made me do it for the whole hour. And in that hour, just holding this one position, I would have to stop and restart, right? I realized I have no idea what it means to focus. So through that practice, I, I my focus got really clear. And that just, it just spread into every aspect of my life, including the music. So then I realized what it meant to be in the moment is to have that focus, that meditation, right? And not being concerned with what you sounded like. If you're concerned with what people think and what you sound like, you're never going to get to music. You might get to fame and fortune, but that has nothing to do with music. So I, I, through that practice, I learned what was important to me. And I never have an existential crisis or I don't have those type of issues because I don't play that game. I'm just in it to connect with people and to make the best music I can make. So I treat it as a meditation. What does that mean, practically speaking, in terms of are you the type of composer where much like a writer say you get up in the morning and these next three hours are going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to put down something on the page. It may be crap, but I'm going to do it because I have to create the space to do it. Or are you going about your day and then inspiration strikes and you drop everything? Like how do you create the environment? I have a busy life, like a lot of people. So I do schedule time for myself. I tell people that I have a, a little one bedroom that cabin that I rent up in the woods and it doesn't have the internet. Oh. It's fantastic. <laughs> I just have paper and pencil or I'm reading. I read a lot. I don't need to be prolific. I'm writing for people. That has to come up. I have to have these situations that I create for myself. I don't just write for random instruments. So not anymore. I mean, maybe I did when I was learning. But yeah, I do like to schedule a certain time of day. I teach full time. So some days I don't get to it. But the days I have off, I schedule time and I turn off the phone and I sit and play. I practice. I still practice the piano. I sit and practice and I'll, I'll sit and write. There's always something I'm working on for composition, right? So I'll, the new thing is I have a poet friend. I heard her poems and I want to put her put some of her poems to, to music, right, for choir. So that's something that... I might spend an hour on that. It might take several years for that to come out or it might turn into something else. So I do think it's important to do whatever it is that you love every day, even for a moment. Like I, I play the piano every day, even if it's not long. So, yeah, but it's not set. Like scheduling is too crazy. I have an 18 year old and I travel still sometimes. So I, I put it where I can put it. Sometimes I'll stay school 11 o'clock midnight because I can work and no one will bother me. I love to work in the middle of the night between 11 and 3 in the morning. That's my time. Great time. Yeah. Great time. It's quiet.
to just ask about a couple of tracks on the record. Could you tell me about CB the Time Traveler? Oh, sure. CB the Time Traveler is for Carla Blake. Carla Blake the Time Traveler. She was definitely ahead of her time. She was somebody really important to me. And as I was putting this record together, I would hear things and I'd be like, oh, that sounds like Carla. I really hear Carla in some of that way I was writing things or voicing things. She was always very generous and would send me scores. We, we weren't like close friends or anything, but she was always really generous. She wrote a blurb for my first solo record, which she didn't have to do. I thought that was really lovely of her. And every time I would ask her for a score, she would just send it to me. She didn't charge me. And I really think that's how we're supposed to share with each other on earth. If, I, if anyone ever asked me for a lesson or a score, I always just give it to them. I'm, we're here to share. It's not our music. It's not my music. It's, it's already there. I, she did get to hear it before she passed. I sent it to her. Oh, wow. A, a version of it that was not mastered right early on. And I was told that they did play it for her. So I was happy that she knew I, I, I made that dedication to her for her. You know, she, she's somebody really important who I always think never gone. I mean, she got some attention and she's well uh, respected, but I think she should have been had, should have gotten more. The Ellington composition comes at such an interesting time in the record because it's it's almost like an intermission or a, a, a small break. That's the way it landed for me. It was like the first, usually the first time I go through an album, I don't pay total attention. I do that on subsequent listenings, but I usually like to just put it on and see what jumps out at me. That interlude, that sort of Ellington interlude it stopped me in my tracks because the record was doing one thing and then it, oh, it's just different in, in, in tone. And I love the way it works. And, and on subsequent listenings, it's like a contrast. I love that in music and, and art in general. And I wonder if you could talk about that composition in particular, like why that song, why, why in the context of this record? It's not obvious to me, like why, how, all that. <laughs> Well, I, I think songs are like family members. That was a particular song that I've loved for many, many years. You live with these songs, you learn them. And it's one of the more unusual Ellington pieces. The harmony is a little bit different, right? It's People don't necessarily guess that it's his piece when they hear it for the first time. There's another piece of his called The Sleeping Woman and the Giant That Watches Over Her. And I play it in a trio form and no one ever guesses it's Ellington because it's just mm. it's still modern sounding, you know? And he was such a forward thinker. He was really revolutionary with the way he, he would arrange things and the way he would, um, you know, push forms. And also the, there's a line between like Duke Ellington and then like Marilyn Williams, Cecil Taylor, Monk. You know, he is the line between all of those people. So I've always loved his music. I love the Latin American suite. But so I, I felt really strongly to include in this piece. And I arranged it in a way to connect to my music, right? So not that I'm presumptuous to say I'm, I'm part of that lineage, but I, it was that it's a, he's definitely somebody important to me, as is Mary Lou Williams, right? So I decided to include it and not deconstruct the melody or do anything that I normally do with, with pieces. But of course, I changed the mood of it a little bit. That's what stood out for me was that there, it was not deconstructed. I think that's a great way to say it, that, yeah, it was so much more straight ahead than some of the other, maybe what preceded it on the album. Although I love the rest of the record, too. It's interesting about Ellington because he is such a modern figure, yet I think there's corners of the music world that view him as ancient history. 
but he is such a transitional it's so strange to have i think maybe it just speaks to the scope of his ambition as well as his longevity that to have been a foundational figure as well as continued to work for so long that it's a strange thing to say about him but i almost feel like we don't talk about his work enough where people talk about his work and, and like you said they make it sound like ancient history but he was really revolutionary in the way he pushed things in terms of musically speaking. And I also don't have this idea that there's such a difference between what people call straight ahead. I don't see this divide that people make, right? And when you listen to Ellington speak, they didn't even use the word jazz. They just used the word music. We want to make good music. So there, there's no categories to, to organize in our minds. And that's what people always say. Somebody interviewed me recently and said, oh, I didn't know you would be interested in playing swing. And I thought it's just music. I don't have this divide between worlds. It's all one world. It's all music, right? It just shows you like how sometimes people get tunnel vision. Because when you listen to something, you want to understand it. You want to grasp it. And I tell people, just let the music flow over you like the wind or water. Try not to judge it. That's really hard for people to do because people love to judge things, right? And sort them and categorize them. Yeah. Yeah, they love doing that. So when you meet someone that you have trouble categorizing, you either get pushed aside or people paying you because they don't know where to put you. Yeah. That happens a lot. Oftentimes as listeners, we don't think of ourselves as like, well, I only listen to jazz or I only listen to the Beatles or whatever it is. It's strange that we project that on our artists, that they should not reflect what it is that listeners do as well. Of course, if you love music, I get it. There's some people that want to explore a form or a genre or a subgenre. And I understand that there's a curiosity and an affinity, but there's also this like holistic approach of like, it is just music. And that's something that I, I'm finding very exciting about the modern instrumental music landscape is that there's such a blurring of what I've referred to as like uptown, downtown, or experimental and traditional or electroacoustic. Like, I think it's a particularly exciting and interesting time especially as someone of a certain age where, you know, and I, I've said it to other guests on this podcast where the narrative when I was growing up was like, jazz is dead or is jazz dead? It was almost like there, there will never be any more innovation in jazz. And now with where we sit today, 
there's so many interesting players doing so many interesting things and such a vibrant community. Do you feel that from where you sit or am I projecting this on the the community? <laughs> no, I, I think there's a lot more people doing things. And, and I always tell people, you have to use so the category of jazz. That, that all started, it was named after the fact, of course. No one called their music jazz back then. People making the music didn't use that word. But it was innovation. So if you want to talk about what the tradition is innovation, a lot of people would argue with me about that. A lot of people want the language of what happened before is to stay static and stay the same, but it doesn't, it can't. So that's one thing I love about teaching is like, I see the next generation and they're going to do things that I never thought of. And that's exciting to me. I, I, I teach jazz history and I tell people, this is where the music came from, but I can't tell you where it's going. I have no idea where it's going to go. Right. So that's exciting to me. But yeah, I, I see a lot of, uh, improvisation, just that that term being expanded across all kinds of different people. And I hate to say genre because I don't like to think genre, but yeah, I'm feeling this too. There's a lot of, especially younger folks coming up with just different things. They've had the freedom to explore and that's really hopeful to me. Yeah, it's very hopeful. One other track I wanted to ask you about, just because I was not familiar at all, is could you talk about, is it Carvajal? Is that how I say the composer's name? Right. I wasn't familiar with the name or the song. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? I tried to research him. There isn't a lot of information on him. He was Chilean. I found the song, uh, this tune of his, this composition rather, and in a children's book. Like in one of these old children's books from like the 30s or 40s, I had picked up in a, like, in a secondhand store. And these pieces were just beautiful. And I thought, Man, this is really beautiful. I want to include this. But I wasn't able to find out too much about him. He's just, he doesn't have any kind of internet presence, a little bit. I have not found anyone that, that knows him. You can find people on YouTube playing some of his pieces, but there's really not a lot of information. And I just fell in love with this, this little piece. So it, I played it myself and I thought, yeah, I want to include this. I connected with his language, this sort of lyrical language. I, I love that. You had mentioned earlier that You've been able to perform with the ensemble. And I, I, that was something I, I'm curious about. Is there a live performance future for this music? Or do the economics prohibit that? Like, how do you think about this particular ensemble as a living entity? I mean, we were fortunate for over five or six years playing concerts um, here and there. And I would love to play more with this group. It's expensive. You need money to make things go. So it's something I'm working on. And the guys have always asked me, when are we going to play again? And like, hopefully sometime soon. But it's something that, uh, that requires planning, right? And funding. And that's just reality of life, right? So, but yeah, I would hope to play. Now that the music has traveled so far with these people, that are, these great people that I get to play with, I would love to see where it's going to go after. You know, the old days of, of, of a band going on the road and playing the same music for three months, that doesn't happen anymore. So I, it took me five, six years to create that same feeling, right? Such a large group of people. So, yeah, I would love to see where we could push it, where we could take it further, further past this recording. Yeah, one could imagine even after a few weeks on the road of what this ensemble would sound like be hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super fun. Well, I wish that for you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I work, I'm something I'm working on for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for making time to do this. 
love talking with you and I've loved listening to the record and I look forward to more of it. Oh, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Angelica Sanchez. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you'd like to support our work, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And then visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you'll find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.